So if you're saying, I'm going to cheat on myself, I'm going to cheat on my diet, that's, you're setting yourself up for failure. Mm. But if you're like, hey, I ate real clean for five, seven, 10, three, whatever the number is, days, I'm going to have a reward day or a reward meal. And the funny thing is, like I, I think I said this in the book, I have seen people make, make radical changes. So cheat day used to be a bag of Oreos, like the whole bag. Yeah. And then reward day was, you know, I'm going to eat sushi and I feel like I'm going to throw up. Well, is eating that much sushi good for you? No. Is it better than a bag of Oreos? Infinitely better than a bag of Oreos. So <laughs> yes. that's that was the thing. Because the same person went, like I said, from Oreos to sushi. Because, And all we really did was change the terminology. Hey, thank you for checking into this edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you all to go check out truenutrition.com for all of your nutrition and supplement needs. You can go there and get your protein powders, your whole food vitamins, and your vitamin D3 just like me. And when you get finished shopping, you go to check out. Be sure to use the code CEPN for a 5% discount on your total order. Also, be ever so kind and subscribe to the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast Network wherever you stream your podcast, including YouTube for video content and TikTok for those riveting clips so that you can keep the variety coming straight to your ear holes with the automaticity. Now, for this episode, Colt and I were joined by Dr. Matt Chalmers. Dr. Chalmers is a health and wellness professional, practicing doctor, author, and speaker who is an expert in the areas of long-term wellness, nutrition, women's health, weight loss, athlete wellness, and holistic healing. One hour was definitely not enough time to spend with Dr. Chalmers, as you will soon hear. He's an absolute wealth of information and a valuable resource in the domain of wellness, and you can find that out for yourself when you read his book, Pillars of Wellness. Be sure to visit Dr. Chalmers on the socials, on his website at chalmerswellness.com and seawellstore.com. You can find all the info on his link tree, and all this is in the show notes. Check it out for yourself, and you can follow the hyperlinks wherever you need to go. Unfortunately, we do have a disclaimer for this episode, as the universe did its best to challenge us with subpar internet connection, so you will hear some audio disturbance, and it did keep us from posting the entire video of this discussion. Nevertheless, hang in there with us throughout because uh, you shan't be disappointed i promise so ladies and gentlemen it is time once again to keep those brains warm hey everybody welcome back to yet another riveting edition of the cerebral entertainment podcast i am james and with me as always is my good friend colt as always and with us on the line today we have dr matt chalmers how are you doing today dr chalmers i'm doing great man how are you guys feeling ah man we're doing good <laughs> Doing good. Good. <laughs> Going to be doing even better when we extract all this information from you today. Uh, been reading your book. Haven't gotten through the whole thing, but I've hit a lot of the major points, and we've been discussing it today. Uh, I don't want to jump ahead, but I'm excited to, to dig into this because it's you've got some good information, some good perspectives that I am looking forward to, to, to talking about and unpacking even more on the show today. So once again, thank you very much for being here. Absolutely. I'm excited. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, so if you could, tell us about yourself. Tell us who Dr. Chalmers is, your history. I know you've got a pretty cool story as far as how you uh, first, your, your first uh, interaction with chiropractic and how that yeah. all took place. And uh, if you could just give us your pedigree, man, and, and help us to get to know Dr. Chalmers. Yeah, absolutely. So I was in high school playing football and I hurt my back and I couldn't walk. Man, I went, I went and saw radiologists and neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons and physical therapist if you have a license to look at me i saw you i mean it was i saw everybody and at the end of the, t the time that's like two weeks me not being able to walk they send this this guy in to, to tell me what's going on he's like 155 pounds looks like he's never seen the sun and he comes in he was like so we've looked at you we can't find anything wrong with you so what we've decided is that there's nothing wrong with you you're just lying you don't want to play football anymore and i looked at the guy and i'm bench pressing about 400 pounds and squatting about 600 pounds at the time I look at this kid and I'm like, if you were closer, I'd break you in half. And he's all just, what? Like he's all he's just astonished that calling me a liar and a fraud and all that would somehow make me upset. So anyway, I call my coach. I'm like, man, I can't walk. I can't play. He says, go see our team chiropractor. He's like, you know, let's just see what he can do. And I remember because life is funny and ironic. I remember telling him I needed a doctor, not a massage. And he was like, look, it's free. Just go. It's fine. So my parents literally carried me in. Dr. Harris takes the x-rays, the other guy for like an hour and a half, clicks up in the screen. Oh, it's right there. Puts me outside, adjusts me, and did not feel amazing. 
but uh, at the time, but I was able to get up and kind of hobble out and went back to practice three days later. So I was like, this might be something I want to do because I want to help athletes and the other guys apparently couldn't do anything to help me. So that I want to, I want to get involved. I want to do this. And that's kind of how we started with the chiropractic path because I always wanted to do something medical, but after that experience, I was like, no, nah, I'm going to go a different route. So that's, that's how I got into it. Nice. You mentioned in the book that sometimes chiropractors can do things that medical doctors cannot. And yes. it seems to me like that's, that's very heavily weighted in, in the, in the manner of perspective, what kind of perspective you look at a problem, right? Because you, you also mentioned that they're both looking at the same problem, but from a different viewpoint, right? Yes. Yeah. There's lots of times where we'll see something and it's funny because I do so much medical stuff now I try, and I've worked with so many medical doctors for so long, I can kind of see it from their perspective as well. So We'll come in and like, if, if I'm looking at a problem, I'm looking for muscle tone issues, neurologic issues, you know, joint mechanics or you know, issues. A lot of my medical colleagues are looking for tumors, breaks and tears. So, all right, cool. You kind of have to have both. If you really want to get down to the, to the full, like I say, the holistic wellness aspect, but we're looking for two different things. So like I have a patient right now who has had massive trouble with her shoulder for a long time and they've done all sorts of studies and they couldn't figure out what it was They're like well you have a little slap tear but we don't know why that's going on the issue is that she overuses for sports and everything her pecs so what ends up happening is she has very very tone she has high high tone in the front piece of her body and it's basically just messing with her her ac joints we go through and we relax the tone of the pec and all of a sudden everything's working again the reason the shoulder is not working isn't because it's totally torn but because the little mechanoreceptors in the joint are telling it you're damaged stop working mm. and so that's how we look at it. like they were looking at this there was no real tears there's no tumors i don't know what's going on i look at it from a neurologic biomechanical standpoint and go oh this is easy this is what's going on so it's not that you know had i seen a, a fracture or something i'd be like that's y'all's deal you gotta do with that but <laughs> like you said we look at two different aspects and how we get everything to work together so do you think that like if you go through medical school school like when you come out you should be able to have both perspectives or is it purposely not that way um, you can have both, both that way, both perspectives, but the problem that you run into is that when you go to medical school, especially if you're going to become something specific, you spend a lot of time becoming really, really good at the thing you do. So let's take surgery. For example, you don't want your, your shoulder surgeon to, you know, try to be everything. Like I said, well, I'm a nephrologist on Tuesdays and on Thursdays I do surgery for your shoulder. You're like, no, no, I want the guy who only does shoulder surgery, right? Yeah. So it's not that they don't, they're not allowed to have other specific, you know, viewpoints. It's just that they want to be hyper-focused, amazing at one thing, which is great because like I said, you, you want the guy who's all the time doing one thing. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like to me, it's not a zero sum game that you, in fact, work in conjunction with those other doctors in order to approach any kind of a problem from all angles, right? And so we're going to make sure we get this problem corrected one way or the other. Granted, a fracture, like you said, you're going to send that to the other guy. You're like, nope, that's, that's your all's business. Get an x-ray done. Do what you need to do. But when it comes to a lot of these other issues, A, it seems to me like one of the biggest and, and most difficult things is finding out what's wrong in the first place, Right. And so when, when you are a doctor, a specialist, like you, if you specialize in shoulders, whatever it is, right, nephrology, whatever you're doing, um, whatever doctor you are, then that's your hammer, right? And, and so every yeah. problem that you attack is going to be your nail. So you're going to use that one specific tool that you have in order to uh, nail in that nail, hammer that nail. And so it takes a lot of different perspectives in order to be able to try to find out what the problem is in the first place. And just with my personal experience with, with a couple of things that I've had wrong with me, that's been the major factor in getting down to whatever it is we can do about the problem is finding out what the heck it is really in the first place. And that's kind of what I feel like is my job. So there's a couple of different things that, like I said, I feel like are my job. One is the figuring out exactly what's going on and then understanding within the scope of reality is this something that I can or even really want to work on? So again, if it's a, hey, we'll work on plantar fasciitis, super easy to fix. But after about a week, if we're not getting progress, I'll do an MRI. And because I know that if there's no progress after a week, it's not my thing. And we'll see bone spurs or fractures or tumors. I'm like, cool, I'm going to send you to the guy who does this thing. 
He only does this thing. And then I'm gonna make sure that you walk down that road. So that's why I love these guys who are hyper-specific because once they get really good, I know I can feel safe handing my patients off to these guys to do the surgeries that they do and do the, the specialty thing work that they do. Yeah, I guess I guess if I'm a patient though, I, I would rather see one doctor who can tell me multiple different things that it could be versus what you're saying. Like it's better to have multiple people who can do, you know, are really good at that one thing that they do. I guess that's where I was trying to go with that earlier. Well, and yeah, that's that's kind of the thing because a lot of times I'll be able to look at something in my position because I've I've spread a little bit more on variety of you know differential diagnoses is what we call it, like what else could be wrong. So diagnosing the person is really, really important. And then, so that's, that's kind of why a lot of people come see me because I can take a lot of information in and then be like, okay, here are all the things that are going on today. But more importantly, here's what we have to worry about for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And so that's the big piece when we start talking about wellness is the, you know, hey, it's good to know what's going on today. It's critical, but we also have to figure out a plan for the next 40 years. And that's the piece that we don't see a lot of Western medicine work on because of the, again, their specialties, right? It's ER is here. So you don't die. If you go to the ER, as soon as you, I don't care how you feel, as soon as they know you're not going to die, they're like, get out of my ER. And you're like, but I hurt real bad. They're like, go see somebody else about that tomorrow. <laughs> so that's what they're for. Yeah. And then once you've had your heart attack, you go to the cardiologist, but who do you go to if you don't want to have a heart attack? Well, they don't really have that piece. And that's kind of what we're building over here in the wellness space. And so, like you say, you've got to be able to figure out all the stuff, but then you got to figure out who I can I send this to this person to for this specific small. Yeah. Yeah. And you hit on something there that's been a soapbox of mine for some time now. It just, the, the healthcare in our country is not, it does not revolve around, um, you know, trying to stay away from the problem in the first place. Right. Um, it, it's all reactive and that's unfortunate, you know, because it even seems like to me financially, and like I said, I thought this was a soapbox of mine. So it, it, it's something that kind of a spider web here. But uh, if you'll just give me a moment to vent, it, it seems like even financially, it would be such less of a burden on the country, on our healthcare system, if we were preventative as, as opposed to just reactive. Uh, we need more wellness and, and more, uh, you know, we, we need to be able to uh, financially back wellness approaches through through insurances and things like that. Um, more so, so that we can stay away from some of the diseases that come about, you know, your metabolic diseases and cancers and anything that comes with being overweight, hypertension, you know, the list goes on. Um, and, and I just don't understand it, 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 it just dumbfounds me other than they must be making more money. Yeah. It's all, it's, it's a money game. That's for sure. Yeah. They, they must be, but it seems like they could actually save some money if the, if we did it the other way. But what do I know? I'm just a guy over here trying to stay as healthy as possible. Well, that's a big pharma thing though too, right? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. The more issues that we prevent, the less, you know, we need big pharma, right? Well, and that's, see, that's another big problem because you have to just, you have to kind of choose your philosophies every once in a while. And my, I've chosen that I have to assume that all the people who are working in medicine, even though I know this isn't true, I'm assuming that they're all there because they have a deep passion to get people better. Yeah, the money's good. It's better than, you know, being other things, but their deep passions to get people better. And so that's where I kind of be like, okay, that's where we have to start. And then we'll move on from things. The problem is I just think a lot of these guys are not thinking, like you said, they're reactive, right? So what do we do once a thing happens? That's why we don't look forward. You're like, but I agree, we're going to save a lot of money. So for instance, I've had people come to see me who their doctor told was completely fine. Cholesterol's great. Numbers are great. Everything's fine. And they come see me and they're like, Hey, I want to run all your wellness tests. I'm like, cool. We'll send him for a $200 calcium CT and I get it back. And I'm like, dude, you're going to have a heart attack. Like your arteries are all sorts of plaqued out. And they're like, but my cholesterol is fine. And it's like, well, cholesterol has nothing to do with cardiovascular health. Not a thing. So we look at the calcium CT, we see it. We can put a stent in this guy and keep him from having a heart attack. You know, the 500 and something thousand people a year die from heart attacks. The vast majority of them, that heart attack was the first incident, first realization they had something wrong with their heart. So, you know, we've done echocardiograms of 20 year olds and found all sorts of issues with them that we were able to then fix so that they didn't have a heart attack or stroke five, 10 years down the road. So it, it is really, really big to start on some of these pre preventive things, you know, because you never know what you're going to find until you look. So and a lot of these things are actually pretty cheap to look. So if we can look, we can prevent a lot of damage. So it, it is, it is probably, it is nice to look down the road. So you're saying high cholesterol has nothing to do with it. Like why, so why is that, why does it seem like 
in the medical field, that is the thing. Like the high cholesterol is the major reason. Why has that become the thing? I have no idea. It has nothing to do. Like, cause if you walk up to somebody and you're like, Hey doc, you go to cardiology. You're like, Hey doc, <clears throat> this guy has a total cholesterol of 325, you know, HDLs are 40 LDLs are 150 triglycerides. I just, it doesn't even matter. Make up the numbers and be like, how much plaque is he at? They're like, I don't know. Like, okay, well, what is his heart attack risk? Like for the next six months, like, I, I have no idea. What's his heart attack score risk? Like almost nothing. He has a heart, he has a calcium score of 600. Like, dude, that guy needs probably a stent. This guy's gonna have a heart attack soon. We gotta really worry about this guy. So I have no idea why they're still using cholesterol levels as the ter determining factor for cardiovascular health. There's lots of studies out that actually show a ton of people have died from heart attacks and strokes that had what we consider good or perfect cholesterol. The real reason that the cholesterol, how much you have in your body, sticks to the blood vessel is from reactive oxidative stress damaging the blood vessel. It releases what's called tissue factor and fibrinogen. That makes any amount of cholesterol that's in the bloodstream stick to that, that area because the body's thinking, hey, this blood vessel is about to rupture and we're going to bleed out. So we need to patch it in emergency style. So they patch it, but the problem is, is that the, the issues creating the reactive oxidative stress or the free radical damage never goes away. And so we don't have time to repair, heal, and get rid of the clot, absorb the clot. And so what ends up happening is that we get more and more and more placking, and then we have issues. But the problem, the other side of that is that we're not looking for placking, we're looking for cholesterol, which is what makes plaque. But we, they're not tied together in any real way. So that's why I just tell people, look, qu quit doing the $200 blood lab and do the $200 x-ray and know exactly how much placking you have. Quit beating around the bush. Mm, wow. Hmm. Yeah. And... It's, it's once again, a good thing we have wellness experts to not only, and I mean this in all seriousness, seriousness, not only because when we have a problem, we need to know what the problem is exactly. Like, okay, I've got a pain in my, in my abdomen. Okay. What is it? I know it hurts. Um, I know that I need to get it fixed, but what's going on? And I might run through a battery of tests just trying to figure this out. And really at the end of the day, not figure out what's going on because not only do we have to figure it out what it is, we got to figure out how to figure out what it is, right? <laughs> so um, another thing about wellness, though, is that this is an attempt. We, we need to know what to do in order to prevent problems. Now, we get a lot of general generalities, a lot of general advice on how to be healthy, right? Mm -hmm. But everybody's different. Everybody is different. And we need to know exactly, you know, based off maybe my history, my family history, things like that, put together this storyline of how I could be the healthiest me that I can be as well. Um, and, and it sounds like an approach such as yours um, to, to really focus on wellness and the way that I can prevent disease in the first place should be a priority in everybody's lives. Um, and unfortunately, it's probably not the case, but hopefully we can get the word out and help make that happen. Well, you know, ever since COVID, yeah, no matter how good or bad life goes, throws at you, you got to find the silver lining in it. And COVID had a lot of bad, but I mean, I think we all recognize that, mm. but it had some good stuff in it too. I'm starting to hear people actually use the term, take control of health. Not people say I need to get better. I need to, you know, work on my weight or whatever, but people are now starting to say, I need to take, take control of my health. They know what the word comorbidity means. They're starting to understand their daily actions actually directly impact their health and their wellness and their longevity. So I think people are starting to learn this. The problem is they're just trying to figure out Okay, now that I know I got to do something to stay healthy, to stay well, who do I talk to? What you know, where do I go to find this information? Because my doctor told me I was totally fine, but I don't know if that's 100, you know, good to go. And the problem is, is that it's probably not. So like when we, whenever somebody starts with me and they they come in there they're like, hey, I want to run all the tests. The first two most important tests I do are a calcium CT and a sleep study, because you would be shocked at how many people have massive sleep apnea issues and don't even know it. Mm -hmm. We've had epileptics come in with massive issues. We get them a CPAP, fix their sleep issues, and they stop having seizures, migraine headaches. Like one of my favorite stories of this 28-year-old Jack. She looked amazing. All sorts of great stuff. She had migraines, terrible migraines. And we went to neurologists, did every test they could do except for a sleep study. She comes back and I'm looking at it. And I go, look, you've smoked everything else. I just wanted to get a sleep study just to see. And she's like, fine. So she's getting the sleep study massive acne she just stops breathing in the middle of the night she didn't mm -hmm. snore she just stopped breathing we got her cpap never had a migraine again so there's lots of things low testosterone can be a sleep apnea issue so there's tons and tons and tons of things that we see directly tied to sleep apnea that again 
unless we look, we never know that it's there. That, so we can't treat something we don't know is there. So those are some of the ones we do. We also do echocardiograms, which is really, I think, hilarious because even cardiologists are like, why are you doing echocardiograms on people who are totally healthy? I'm like, because I don't know that they're totally healthy. What happens if this person has a hole in their heart or mitral valve or, you know, you know, any type of the other 95 things that could be wrong with your heart that we can't tell unless we look. Mm. And for a couple hundred bucks, we can know. And so that's kind of the big, the big pan that we're walking down now is figuring out exactly what's going on with people, where they are today. And then, like I said, where we want to be. And we just walk down that road. Yeah. With the testosterone and apnea thing, like which one causes the other or can, can it go both ways? Like does, is apnea caused by low testosterone or low testosterone causes apnea? So low testosterone is going to cause uh, muscular tone problems all over the body. Right. So I, I, there's a big, there's a big piece of me. I've got enough research on it. I think a lot of the deep vein thrombocyte or the DVT are having an elderly is because they have low testosterone. The blood vessels are actually losing their muscle tone. And so they're going from that nice round straw-like hole to it collapses. And so then when they stand back up, they get a pressure it opens back up. But if they had the muscle tone, because the testosterone would be there, it would stay open and we wouldn't have as many DVTs. So gotcha. that piece can obviously affect the musculature and the, the breathing function of the ribs and the neck. So yes, low T can cause uh, sleep apnea, but what we will see more often is that the sleep apnea is called a low T. So regardless, if we find it, we got to fix it. Yeah, and absolutely. so sometimes if someone comes in, we've, we've run their hormones and the guy's at 300 and we like, oh, you have massive apnea. Sometimes we'll give them the CPAP for two, three months and then pull it again. But we see like, we, I've seen it go from 300 to 600. I've never got, I've seen it going from 300 to a thousand. So once you've damaged that organ, it doesn't always come hundred percent back. And the two biggest organs that are damaged by apnea, your heart and your brain. So if you have another study, but you need to get one regardless. Yeah. Right. Yep. I have had a sleep study done of course i knew that i had apnea from uh, from when i was a kid because i was a major snorer and used to keep my mom up at night because i would stop breathing and she would just watch me to make sure i wasn't going to die <laughs> you know as a small kid that's, that's kind of scary for a mother but i didn't end up getting anything done until my 30s unfortunately um, and then once i started once i got the cpap it was, took a long time for me to get used to it it's not an easy thing to to do to wear a CPAP while you're sleeping. It's uncomfortable. You know, there's a lot of take, takes a lot of getting used to, but once you do, my goodness, the, the difference in, in the quality of life, being able to, to breathe all through your sleep at night, it, it's amazing. And without even really being fully aware of physiologically all, all what's actually going on, just, I can just tell, I'm just aware that my quality of life increased so much. So it doesn't surprise me that a sleep study is, is on the top of the list of things to do if, if you know, for a wellness check in general, I, I highly support that for sure. That's, that's good. Yeah. We've got a lot of guys that have come in and they fought through it. Like you said, you did. Um, and then they got, they got better. And then they just come in there like, man, I'm losing weight and I'm not really doing anything extra. Well, one, your test came up and two, your body uses oxygen to burn fat. And so if you can get deep restful regenerative sleep, your body's going to just function at a higher level. So they're like, like, I'm working better. Like I've got more energy during the day. My cognitive functions better. I'm losing this fat. I'm, I'm starting to work out again. Like all these good things start happening when you actually sleep and you breathe while you're asleep. It is an amazing transformation. We've had people come in and just say all sorts of crazy things. Like I tell people the sound of snoring, and this is graphic, but the sound of snoring is actually the sound of you choking to death on your own flesh. Like that's, it, it's bad, bad. Like you snore, fix it. Cause it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's so, that yeah. is that is pretty graphic. I had to take a second to really, you know, <laughs> take that in. So like, let, wow. that, let that soak in and yeah. figure out how to process that. Yeah. Right. I wish you'd have told me that like, you know, 20, 25 years ago. <laughs> I could have fixed this problem, you know, a lot sooner, but that's okay. <laughs> but I, I work, so like I tell women like, hey, you should do X, Y, and T. And they're like, all right, you're okay. Yeah. But when I talk to the guys outside of the testosterone, when I talk to the guys, Oftentimes, I got to make it super graphic so they grasp yeah. the the immediacy of the need yes. for what's going on. Because like I feel fine when I wake up, I'm like you might not wake up. Like that's <laughs> that's the point, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's if you wake so, up, right? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. It, younger guys, especially right. Cause when I was in my late teens through my twenties and into my thirties, it's hard headed. I, I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, Superman bulletproof. Uh, yeah, sure. Oh, I, yeah. Sure. I snore and quit breathing at night. So what, you know, <laughs> I keep waking up, don't I? But uh, I've woken up every day so far. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <Yeah>. That was me. <laughs> yeah. That was me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, very, very wise words. Uh, they are, in fact, words I, I wish I would have heard, you know, a lot, a lot sooner in my life. But who knows whether I would have actually listened to to those words. Uh, I might have heard them at some point, but uh, better late than never. And so I, I still once again urge everybody, no matter what stage of life you're in, you know, get healthier and, and get a sleep study done for sure. Um, the, yeah. the more you think about it, even just sleep. How, how often are we asleep? Are, I, how how long are we asleep during our lives? You know, they say a third of your life, you you should be in bed, right? Eight hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. And so that's a pretty big chunk of your <laughs> life that you really should pay attention to. You know, everything from um, the mattress you use to the routine that you have to whether or not you need a CPAP machine in order to keep breathing while you're trying to, to do that important thing. <laughs> yeah, no, sleep sleep's huge. You know, and I sit down and talk to my athletes and I'm like, it's always because I'm like, when do you think you get big muscles? When do you think the muscles grow? And they're like, when I go to the gym. And I'm like, no. Right. When you go to the gym, you break the muscles down. Yep. When you go to sleep, your body rebuilds those muscles better. So if you're not sleeping properly or enough, your gains are totally messed up. Mm-hmm. And my athletes kind of look at me and they're like, oh, that kind of makes sense. And they'll go read about it a little bit. And they'll be like, I have a bedtime now. <laughs> I'm in bed at the same time every night. I get all this sleep. So now sleep is, sleep is super critical. Mm-hmm. Before we move too far away from the testosterone subject, Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of, um, so like a lot of bodybuilders, uh, fitness and nutrition people talk about how urologists just have like this basic line of what they think your testosterone should be at. And I'm just curious on your thought process of that. Like a lot of people can be at the very bottom, but still in a normal range and urologists say, you're fine. There's nothing, you know, we're not going to do anything for you. Do you think it depends on the person? And is there a, a certain line where everyone should be at? So everyone's body is a little bit different from the diet to the testosterone levels and everything else. Um, but what we typically see is, so the decision you have to make is, okay, what is, what is safe, right? Mm-hmm. And to be totally honest with testosterone, you can give somebody a little tiny bit or a whole lot and you don't know if it's safe until you check what's called the H and H, the hemocritin, hem, uh, hemoglobin. So, because that's how thick the blood gets. But having said that, typically what we're seeing is that men feel really awesome between a thousand and fifteen hundred. So, if someone's like, "I think my number is eight hundred," and we go to a thousand, again, as long as their H and H is fine, we're good. It's not. It's not a huge, huge issue. We don't see a ton of cancers. We don't see a lot of really bad things. Um, if you, if you dose it properly, you can get to 1,000, 1,500 pretty easily without any side effects. Um, but you've got to, you got to walk through that, right? You have to be like, okay, you know, don't do 300 milligrams or 400 milligrams as one injection. Do 200 here and 200 here, and that will, that will stabilize your actual hormone levels, but it'll also decrease your, your acne issues and stuff like that. So, you know, and then if you talk to somebody and you say, hey, First question, anytime we talk to somebody about hormone therapy is, do you have prostate cancer in your family? They're like, oh yeah, my dad, my uncle. We're like, okay, look, we're going to have a big conversation about nandrolone and decanate, not testosterone cypionate. DECA does not convert to dihydrotestosterone or DHT. It does also not, does not convert to estrogen. So since we know that DHT beats up the prostate a lot more than any other hormone, we want to make sure that we don't give you extra DHT by getting cypionate, letting it convert we'll use androlone, it doesn't convert, and we can get a lot more benefit uh, without as much danger. So there are some little things in there to, to kind of focus on. But, you know, when people are just like, well, here's my levels. I'm like, that's fantastic. How do you feel? They're like, oh, I feel amazing. Great. Where's your H&H at? And this is why you need, if you're going to do testosterone, whether you're by yourself or with a doctor, make sure that you're getting checked every quarter for your blood work. It's, your CBC, CMP is all you really need to figure out the safety. So that's the big thing with testosterone is this heart attack stroke wise. It's all about viscosity of the blood. That's H and H. So that's the big piece. And I guess that's an age thing too, right? Because like putting exogenous testosterone in your body can also make your body stop creating it as well. Right. So you have to figure out your levels there also. 
Yeah. So anytime that you put any uh, exogenous hormones in your body, testosterone, thyroid, insulin, growth hormone, any of that type of stuff, you're going to run the risk of downregulating the amount of that you naturally produce. Now, if you're a guy and your testosterone is 200, it doesn't matter. 200, 200 should be zero. Like just think of them basically the same thing. Right. So if you kick yourself up to a thousand for three or four months and you're like, Hey, I don't like doing injections. What's going to happen is that if you've been there for two or three months, your body is now working the way it's supposed to, you're going to feel really good, but it's going to take a little while for you to climb up to that really good spot on the front of the pot. Of you. But what you are going to notice is that the day you get off testosterone has a seven day half-life. So if you're at a 10, on, on Monday, rolls around the next Monday, you're at a five. And so within two weeks, you're going to feel like someone sucked all the life out of you. Right. And that's always funny because people will do that and they'll be like, man, I feel terrible. What's going on? I'm like, well, let's run your test again. We pull their testosterone and it's, you know, within 10% of where their old numbers were. And they're like, man, I just feel terrible. I'm like, this is how you always felt six months ago. You just didn't know it. Right. So that's the big piece. So, you know, that's the thing when people come in, they're like, well, you know, where should we do this? Typically we go off symptomatology. How do you feel? How's your energy? How's your sex drive? How's your sexual function? How's your emotional state? Are you anxious, depressed? Are you just, you know, whatever, you know, do your muscles hurt? Are you sore? We can kind of go off those type of things. And if someone's in the 500 range, you can still kind of pick them up. But if someone's in that seven, 800 range, we need to look at other things. And so that's one of the big keys. People come in all the time. They're coming in for tests. They're 800. And I'm like, okay, look, are you coming in because you want benefits in the gym or do you really have these symptoms? Because if you really have these symptoms, man, we got to start digging in deep and figuring out what's going on with you because there's something wrong. That's the other side. People are like, I just don't feel good, but I have low T. You get it checked? Well, no, I just know that's what it is because I'm 40. Okay. That's without looking, let's not start making decisions. Let's, let's actually look. So right. yeah, it's, it's a big piece. Gotcha. Excellent. So doc, let's start breaking into this book that you have written the pillars of wellness. And I will tell you that one of my favorite parts is, is the, the way that you dissect the semantics on a lot of different words and phrases. I find that very interesting and in how we kind of, uh, we convolute some things um, that we think is a healthy approach, but the way that we shape our, our reality is done through language and the language that we use shapes our reality, right? So uh, when we're looking at some things like normal and, and like uh, weight loss, those, those different words and phrases, actually, they mean something when, when uh, regarding your approach to being a healthier person, yes. to, to your wellness, right? So if you could just give us a little snippet uh, about the inspiration behind this book, why you wrote it, and then we'll, we'll start digging in. You know, it's always funny. I wish I had some real awesome you know, existential reason why I had to make sure everyone had all this great wellness knowledge because I'm so given... Uh, it was during COVID and I was going to go insane because I'm usually, I'm up at 4am, I do research and I see patients all day long. So all of a sudden when stuff ground to a halt, I, I didn't know what to do. And I was like, I got to figure out something to do. And one of my buddies was like, have you written a book yet? And I was like, that, oh, that'll do. I'll, that's something I can do that it's going to take all my time. And so I just wrote the, I wrote the book because these are basically things that I've seen over and over and over and over again, that people are just tripping over. But I was like, look, I've said this a thousand times. So I'm going to put it in a book and just read it because it'll you know, clear a lot of this stuff up. And kind of like what you're talking about, I hear all the time, the two things I hate more than anything are normal and then normal for your age. And I'm like, really? That's like, you know, underage drinking is normal. Is it acceptable? Like, like that's, that's the question we should ask. Oh yeah. You know, when you're 60, you're going to, as a woman, you're going to have, you know, no sexual function. Your bones are going to fall apart. You're going to be weak and tired all the time. That's normal for your age. It, okay. Did anybody ask if that was acceptable? Right. Like if you're like, no, 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 that's not how I'm going to live my life. Well, what do you do now? Well, that's the, that's kind of how I put this whole thing together is highest quality of life for the longest period of time. I don't care what's normal. Are you happy with it? If you're not happy with it, we got to change it. So that's my piece on normal. And then the weight loss thing, this is kind of a funny story. Uh, one of those things where you live life and you figure out that you shouldn't say things. So I had a lady come in for weight loss and we were working on weight loss. And she, she was like 50, 60 pounds over fat. Um, not overweight, but she had lots of fat she got to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And man, we did great work. I mean, she lost six inches like around her waist. I mean, it was amazing. And she comes in and I'm like, 
putting her up as my poster child for like, see how great I am at this. This is so awesome. Like, this is amazing. She comes in, she sits down and she goes, Hey, um, I don't think this is working for me. And I just kind of stared at her completely dumbfounded. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, well, I still weigh 135 pounds. And I was like, so like you're five, you're however tall, five, seven, something like that. And I'm like, and you know, we're working out, we're putting on muscle. And she was like, yeah, but I want to be 120. And that's when it occurred to me that I was not allowing, I didn't, it was my fault. I didn't give her the proper goal set mm -hmm. that we need to say, look, I don't care about the scale. How do you want to look? How do you want to feel? Where do you want your wellness to be? Because if we just arbitrarily pick a number that has no bearing on health, you know, I'm, I'm six feet tall. I weigh 250 pounds. You can see my abs, but I'm grossly overweight. If you ask the medical community, mm -hmm. but I don't feel like I'm over fat or I'm unhealthy because of all my numbers are perfect. So that's the big thing. When we talk about weight loss. I start finally told people, I'm not going to help you with weight loss. If you want to lose some fat, I'll help you lose some fat. If you want to gain some muscle, I'll help you gain some muscle. But we're not going to tie this to a scale unless you're an athlete. I mean, if you're, if you're a wrestler and you need to be at 135, we're going to get you to 135. Like that, that's obviously an extending circumstance, but a normal person, no, we're not going to use the scale as, as a guide. That's all that's going to mess us up. I wonder where she yeah. got that number from. Like, is that just a societal thing? Like why, why did she think she needs to be at that number? No matter what she looks like, I, that's kind of interesting. You know, I don't know, but you know, and I've never done this study, but it'd be interesting if you went around to a bunch of different guys and you said, what's your perfect weight? They'd be like, I don't know. If you went to women and you said, what's your perfect weight? I bet 50, 60% of them would have a number in their head right now true. of what they think they should weigh. That's true. Whether they get it from magazines or I don't, I don't know. Like I don't read women's magazines. I don't know if they're like, this person's 120 pounds. That means she's good. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't like, maybe that's what they say. I don't yeah. know. But yeah. So I, don't, I don't know where they get these numbers. Yeah, it's good. I, I think a lot of them are arbitrary, but I've, I've witnessed that myself. You know, uh, people, usually females, who want to hit that certain number. And it may come from that dreaded BMI chart that we all hate so much. Um, I can't stand it. I think according to that BMI chart, I, I believe I'm six foot tall. And I think I'm supposed to weigh like 170 or something like that, according to that chart, in order to be quote unquote healthy. Um I've been 170 before in, in my 20s, and I look like a rail. I mean, I look unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not healthy for yeah. me to be yeah. 170. It's crazy. I feel good at 195 to 200. That's usually where I, where I land. Um, it just it, It's the way that I, I, I think I feel the best, and I, I think I look the best for, for my build, and so that's, that's what I shoot for. And I say sometimes that people probably think it's vanity, and maybe it is to a, a little bit, but I tell them the reason why I work out, the reason why – um, I do, you know, resistance training and things of that nature is because I want to look good. It makes me feel good, you know, but I think that's the biggest indicator for me to be where I should be is when I can look in the mirror and think that I look good. Right. You know, I don't, I don't want to be, and you can't see my abs, you know, <laughs> but, but, but I'm not, but I'm also not carrying around a, you know, a, a pot belly most of the time either. You know, it does fluctuate a little bit. Um, but I can tell when I look good that that's, that's where I'm supposed to be, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because people try to be like, oh, you shouldn't be vain. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. Um, there's an expression that everything is sales. And whether you're selling cars or health or yourself to other people, that's a fact. And there's been numerous research studies that have come out. And then like, you know, when people are in shape, people listen to them more. And so that's one of those things. If you're like, look, I'm just trying to be healthy. I'm trying to communicate my message. And, you know, I'm just trying to get through life in the best way I can. You know, not everybody needs to be, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or one of those things to, you know, to get by in life. But, you know, one of the biggest things we're starting to see with a lot of our, you know, the CEOs and stuff like that is that health is starting to become a bigger and bigger thing. Because the great thing about having a nice body is that, well, it could be genetics. Yeah, okay. When you're 45% of these guys are genetics. The rest of them are, you had to work hard, mm -hmm. you had to train, you had to sacrifice, you had to do, there's a lot of things that go into that, that go to character. And so that's one of those things. When I see somebody who's fit, I, and I start talking to them, they're like, oh, I do this for working out and this and that. Like, I know that person's going to work hard. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of those things that when I see athletes come in, they're like, I have an issue. I know they're going to get better because I already know that they're used to putting work in. They're used to having to work on their body. And so they're good with it. So there's a lot more than just like, hey, I'm vain. 
75 hard, people talk about it for weight loss. It has nothing to do with weight loss. It's a mental psychological training tool. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these things are actually psychological, but we keep looking at them in the vanity standpoint, because yes, you have to go work in your body, but you have to, you know, think about losing fat. You've got to set your macros perfect. You've got to, you know, eat a calorie deficit, which means you're probably hungry a little bit. You've got to work out, you got to sleep. You got to cut all the fun things out of life. No alcohol, no sugar and stuff like that. So it really is a big piece of, you know, not just being vain, but deciding that you're going to take this big step into creating yourself. So that's the big thing I think we see with a lot of athletes is that that's the piece that really gets them up. Yeah. That, that's a good point too. It's, it's a matter of self-focus, right? Yeah. I'm going to focus on me a lot, but in doing so, not only am I going to be physically healthier, I'm also going to be more mentally in tune with myself and physically or spiritually in tune as well. And I'm going to build that character that you're talking about. And so the first pillar of wellness that you write about is the psychological pillar. And um, I, I, it, you put it first on purpose because it is the first step into anything that we do that we um, that are going to take steps to do. We have to think about it first. And a line that I've used myself in my own life is that every every diet plan, every workout routine, every healthy habit that we're going to form always starts with a thought first. It always starts in the brain every single time. And Colt here, he's not only, we're not only co-host on the show, we're also workout buddies and, and we stay in touch about all things, you know, fitness and nutrition and a lot of other things as well. But, uh, we, we game plan, you know, we, we talk about things and he's good about planning the workouts, you know, and going and finding new, new and fresh workouts from, from some, you know, from people that we trust online and, he brings those to the gym and then we follow those and we see results and it all starts with that the thought process. And so uh, talk to us a little bit about the, the psychological process of, of wellness and, and how that's why that's so important and how it works. So there's a number of different things that psychology, like you said, plays in so big. Um, one of the big things is consistency, right? If you want to be healthy, you've got to be healthy on a consistent basis. You can't just be healthy on Tuesdays and then on Fridays and Saturdays, you go crazy. So you have to be consistent with it. And so you have to decide that you're going to be consistent with it. And so that's one of those big pieces that we think about. But the other thing is, is that you can radically shift your life as long as you start focusing on positive function and start pushing the, the negative side. And you start recognizing things as wins, right? You start being gracious. You start having gratitude towards life. When you start looking for good things, you start seeing them more. It's kind of the idea of, you know, if you think about buying a blue Corvette, like I'm going to get a blue Corvette and you start thinking about all of a sudden you start seeing blue Corvettes everywhere, right? They were mm -hmm. all there before, but you just never, like you weren't attuned to them. Mm -hmm. So now you're seeing blue Corvettes. It's the same thing. If you start looking for positivity and looking for function and looking for good things and recognizing them and then kind of make being grateful for them, you're going to start noticing that your life starts turning around because your psychology is more shifted towards positive function. You can also start thinking, well, hey, this negative thing, how do I make that positive so I can be grateful for this thing is now fixed? So it leads a lot of different ways down the road because if you're always miserable and nothing's good and everything's trash. Your psychology is all way in the gutter, but your stress level is also over there as well. And stress is the number one killer of all good things and in the body it causes mm -hmm. heart attack, strokes, cancer, all sorts of things. So the more we can alleviate that stress with positive functional thinking, the better we're going to be on every sort of different level. Yeah. The importance of, of stress management, right? And, and it's, it's, we hear it, it, it's, it's a ubiquitous concept, but it is so important. And the other thing that is ubiquitous is stress itself, because even a workout, you know, is, is a stressful thing for the body. And so we have to find different ways to manage that stress. Uh, another another really important thing I liked about the psychological pillar that you wrote about is another semantics concept, and that's the cheat day versus reward day, right? And the difference that using one phrase over another actually helps to shape your psychology and, and your approach to wellness. Because who likes a cheater, right? Nobody <laughs> likes a cheater. You get mad at no. cheaters if they cheat, right? Um, yeah. and, and it can also definitely negatively impact what you term as a reward day when you consider it a cheat, you know, because cheating, that just, that just sounds nefarious, right? It sounds like something that you're not supposed to do. Well, a reward day is something that you actually should do, right? It's something that sh yeah. should be rewarding. So um, 
I, I love the concept of that. I, I love the way that you parsed that out and, and kind of helped shape what could be more productive and more beneficial. Yeah, that's one of my big things, because like I said, you've got to get rid of all the negative functions. If you're calling yourself a cheater all the time, like you said, you know, I go through the thing, if the other team cheats, if the politician cheats, if significant other cheats, like out of those three, which one of those makes you feel warm and fuzzy and happy? None of them. So if you're saying, I'm going to cheat on myself, I'm going to cheat on my diet, that's, you're setting yourself up for failure. Mm. But if you're like, hey, I ate, I ate real clean for five, seven, 10, three, whatever the number is, days, I'm going to have a reward day or a reward meal. And the funny thing is, I guess, I think I said this in the book, I have seen people make, make radical changes. So cheat day used to be a bag of Oreos, like the whole bag. Yeah. And then reward day was, you know, I'm going to eat sushi and I feel like I'm going to throw up. Well, is eating that much sushi good for you? No. Is it better than a bag of Oreos? Infinitely better than a bag of Oreos. So <laughs> yes. that's that was the thing. Because the same person went, like I said, from Oreos to sushi. Because And all we really did was change the terminology. He mm -hmm. was like, well, if that's going to be a reward, like, I mean, I'm going to earn it. And so he, he was real clean. And he was like, you know, and, you know, I just feel like this is more of a reward than Oreos. I'm a grown man. <laughs> so I was like, all right, cool. So you know, it helps out. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And I've often thought about this in respect of, to substance abuse too, and, and dieting in general. When someone goes on a diet or they're sober for so long, but then they they reward themselves by completely demolishing either their diet or their their sobriety. And at the end of the day, are you really rewarding yourself? Is was that really beneficial to you, right. or, or did you just completely subvert all of the progress that you've made? Did, did you just completely demolish everything that you know the progress that you made and so uh, i think a reward day when you when you conceptualize it as such then you can think about what's really rewarding for me like a bag of oreos that's fun you know i could i could do that i could smash a bag of oreos now and again um but the reward there i mean i get a sh massive sugar rush right um get the chemicals in my brain that says wow that was fun and it's gonna <laughs> want it again you know really soon after that um but as far as a reward goes, what, what really is the reward there other than that, you know, that quick uh, instant gratification in, in the neurochemicals of my brain? It's also interesting, too, yeah. like in the bodybuilding world, you hear people who can't do reward days or cheat days or whatever you want to call it. Like they can't like they, they just physically the psychology for them is not there to be able to do it and not just, you know, fall back into bad habits. You know, and that's that is a big piece. And so I tell people, look, you know, if like the alcohol thing or whatever there's certain things we're just like look you know if you're an alcoholic whiskey's not going to be your reward because that's not going to end up leading us to a rewarding future right um but on the other side of that you know like you said i got a lot of guys who like we'll put them on the right fuel source like they'll be eating you know like the mes a mesomorph diet but they're hard endomorphs and so i'll move them over an endomorph diet like a solid macro and they're like i don't feel the need to jump off this diet because I got all the things I want and I feel fulfilled and I feel full and I'm good to go. So I haven't really decided to leave the diet for months and I'm fine. So that's the other big piece is like you said, there's a lot of people who are like, I, I don't feel the hard desire to go eat this trash. So I'm just going to stay where I'm at and I'm going to have a good time. And that's, we do see that a lot. That happens more and more as you get deeper into it and people start seeing their gains and they're like, I'm looking better. I'm feeling better. Everything in my life's turning better. I'm not going to walk down the road that I know where that leads anymore. I'm going to keep going on this road that where I want to go. We do see time between reward days kind of expand just naturally as they go along. But like you say, there's a lot of people who just don't do them. So that's, that's, that's an option as well. Sure. Right. Yeah. And I mean, in a sense, we're also getting into the second pillar here, the biochemical pillar, right? Um, we're talking about a lot of, a lot of things that take place inside the body physiologically and so uh, here in biochemical, the, the biochemical pillar that you, that you write about, talking a lot about supplementation. And this is a, a very interesting topic, I know, for Colt and myself both. Uh, really very curious about supplementation. And I love the analogy here as well. You've got a Ferrari versus a Toyota. Talk to us about the Ferrari versus the Toyota and what the difference is as far as supplementation is concerned. So a lot of times, because I work with a lot of CEOs and high-end actors and high-end, you know, athletes and CEOs and all that stuff, and I always tell them, look, when your stress level 
is you open your eyes, you're stressed through the roof and you, you've got to fight to close your eyes because your stress levels through the roof at the end of the day, you're running a lot hotter and a lot higher and a lot more function than a normal person. So I always tell people, you don't take a twin tur turbocharged W12 Ferrari engine to a Toyota Corolla mechanic. It's not that he's not a great mechanic. He just doesn't know how to work on something at that, at that function, that level. Mm. And so that's one of those things we kind of set the stage. And then I'm like, look, if you've got this much stress, if you're working this hard, if you've got these neat things, we've got to balance the stress, right? Like I own multiple companies. I see patients say, I wake up at four, I get home and see my kids at six. And so I'm running all day long. So you got to figure out ways of balancing that stress. And supplementation is a big piece because I always tell people, you eat for calories, so for the, you know, the energy to actually function, and you eat for fat functionality or how much fat you want to carry. You supplement for all your health, your B vitamins, your CoQ10, your DHA, EPA, you know, all this, your, some of your digestive enzymes, your probiotics, you've got to get all that stuff in one way or another, or another. So if we're not getting the levels that we need from our food, which you can't, then we're going to have to supplement somehow. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, how do we find that piece for you? Mm -hmm. um, mine, I take tons of stuff, but I don't care because it's like, hey, you know, if someone told me you spent a thousand dollars last year, uh, more than you needed to on supplements. My question would have been like, what day? Because there's so many days where I wake up in the morning and I don't know that my son's going to break his arm that day. I don't know that, you know, I have a patient who comes in who had half of his skull removed because he had a, a car wreck. You know, I don't know what my day is going to hold. I don't know what's going to be thrown at me. So, you know, I don't know how much stress I'm going to have to deal with that day. So I, I do every day as if it's going to be a kick in the teeth. And so I take a little bit to me B vitamins and my water just flushes them out. Fine. The problem is, is that what if I needed 10 units and I only took in six because I was trying to save a penny. So that's the other side. And that's the decision I made. And everybody has to kind of make that decision for themselves of, you know, where do I want to be on this pill count financially, all that type of stuff. But the supplementation is hypercritical to long-term body function. Yeah. Can you, can you give us a basic baseline of what you think people should be taking? I know it's different for everybody based off of their levels of everything, but like just a basic... If you were given just a basic person, what do you, what should you be taking? What is it? So my, my number one choice is going to be hydrochloric acid. The reason for that is because when you start to get stressed out, your body shifts from parasympathetic, which is resting, digesting to fight flight, which is sympathetic. When that happens, your body quits producing hydrochloric acid. And so what ends up happening is that anything you eat that has a parasite, a virus, a bacteria on it, you're going to get infected with that problem. And so the HCL will help kill all those things. So that's probably one. And then uh, D3 would be one of the other ones. D3 is hypercritical to all function in the body. What it actually does is it helps absorb ions through the gut, calcium, magnesium, potassium, whatever it is, uh, chloride. And then it tells it, hey, now that we've absorbed this calcium ion, I need you to take it over here to the bone and make more bone out of it. And so it does that. It'll say, hey, the heart needs more electrolytes. So I'm going to take some of this stuff. I'm going to stick it in the heart. Hey, we need to make some more energy, some more ATP. So I'm going to take all these nutrients and take it over to the cells for the electron chain transport functionality so we can make more energy. Once you kind of get those, everything else kind of falls into an order of, you know, B vitamins are hypercritical, like the full spectrum. They need to be methylated. Um, CoQ10 for, again, electron chain transport and uh, free radical reactive oxidative stress issues. Um, EPA, DHA for brain function. So you know, but if I had to pick just the one, it would be something for digestion because that's hypercritical for the whole function. So HCL is probably going to be the number one. Okay, cool. Yeah, that that was actually one of my questions was the very basic general foundation of supplementation, um, and and so that's a that's a very good well rounded answer. And how much emphasis you put on D three that was that was interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that D three did all of that. Like I I knew a lot of it, but <laughs> D three is is super important. And I also noted I noted how much weight you put on the B vitamins. Like all of them, they they all have their little paragraph in your book, um, and you explained the, the how all of them work. And so that that was uh, very uh, very enlightening as well. What is it about the B vitamins that is so important once again? So B vitamins, people know B vitamins because of energy, but what they don't understand is that yes, B12 gives you energy. B2 and B6 are hypercritical for you to be able to fall asleep. So we got to get those in. Uh, folic acid, L-methyltryhydrofolate specifically, is hypercritical for liver function. It's for you know colon health, for all mucous membrane function. 
it helps the brain and spinal cord actually form when you're in uh, when you're becoming when you're when a woman's pregnant and you're in gestation. That's how it forms. It helps heal the brain. One of the big things I give athletes for concussions is methylated folic acid mm. because it's so important for the brain and for all functionality of that site that type. So, you know, they're all hypercritical, and we want to make sure that we get all of them in. You know, with niacin, we've actually seen over long term you can actually reduce um, plaquing style issues. You can reduce cholesterol. You know, things you can heal the liver. So, one of the things I always like to talk about with when we talk about supplementation is that we have to understand where the levels that everybody hears about come from. The RDA was designed in the 40s to figure out what the lowest amount of nutrient we could give a soldier was, and they could still fight without getting rickets and scurvy and stuff like that. So mm. those are the very bare minimum before we see on a large scale people having issues. So if you look at the levels, you're like, well, D3 is supposed to be 30 and I'm at 35. So I guess I'm okay. No, you, 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 that's terrible. Like I like my D3 somewhere in the 80 to 120 range. And so that's really, really big. Um, the B vitamins for most people I want, you know, function out in the 2000 levels when you get a blood test. Um, so some of these things have a much, much higher need than we're, you know, we're giving credit for, because again, remember, we looked at these issues in the forties. If you don't think your life pace and your stress level and your constant function is so much higher now, man, it's, it, it's terrible. So we really need to get these levels up. We need to get more nutrients in. Fantastic. Next, we move into the biomechanical right? We, we move into movement, we move into exercise. Uh, this is what most people think about when they think about fitness, right? So what is the, can you, can you just frame the very basic concepts of the benefits of biomechanical, uh, that, that pillar that you talk about for wellness? What's so good about exercise? So, so, well, you know, exercise will always destroy your stress curve. So, right. So I work out in the middle of the day so that as the stress builds up, I go work out and it crashes it back and I come back to this parasympathetic functions. That's a big piece. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that body rebuilds itself because of the damage that you do to it. So if you can put positive stress in the body by working it out, it will heal and get stronger. As it heals and gets stronger, you can then function more throughout life. Like one of the things I say to a lot of people is, you know, everyone's heard the old expression, you should never lift with your back. And I think that's quite possibly the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life because you can't not lift with your back. So if you don't exercise your back, good mornings is my favorite exercise for this, you're going to have a weak back. But then when something falls out of your cabinet and you go quickly to move to catch it, you're going to hurt your back. Mm. So let's not let's not go looking through life as to how do we become the weakest piece per person we can. Let's again look forward and be like, hey, should I have a strong low back for you know function in life? And the answer is, well, of course you should. Well, then why don't we lift with our low back and strengthen the low back so that we're able to function through? You know, one of the other things we talk about is really taking a, take a step back and saying, what is this joint or this motion supposed to be? And so one of the things <laughs> I start a lot of fights with people is telling them that, you know, you should never do barbell bench for your chest workout. And people are like, well, that's crazy talk. That's the only thing you should do. Well, the problem is, is that your natural range of motion is because the way the pec is designed is elbows go all the way out to the side of your body and then they come together. So when you do dumbbell bench and your hands come way apart and then you push up and they come together, that's the natural range of motion of the shoulder. So if you try to do that with a bar, you're going to end up with shoulder issues sooner or later because it's not allowing the shoulder to actually function the way it's biomechanically designed to work. So these are some of the things that we kind of go through and be like, hey, what's going on with this? The other big thing is sitting. How do you sit? because that's an isotonic isometric exercise. So if you sit in one way for too long, you're going to stand like that. You're going to walk like that. And it's going to have detrimental effects if you don't think through it. So those are some of the big biomechanical pieces of how the body actually functions that we really need to start taking a look at if we're, if we're worried about long-term quality of life. Yeah. So exercise form, right? And that's something that Colt and I talk a lot about. Your form when you're doing exercises makes a big difference. Not just as to whether or not you're effective, effectively exercising, but also whether or not you completely just injure yourself and take yourself out of commission, <laughs> and then you can't work out at all. And as I got into my 40s, I began to really, really focus on such things because I don't want to knock myself out of commission so that I can get into the gym four to five days per week, you know, on, on most weeks, if at all possible. So um, that's very important. And then you also mentioned posture. 
Now, posture yes. is something that I, I admittedly don't pay enough attention to. Um, I try to when I think about it, and that's the problem. I, I need to almost be like reminded. I need to be, you know, solicited to, hey, you know, straighten your back out, put your shoulders back, you know, whatever I need to do. Sitting is terrible. So I've, I've taken more to standing up when I'm working. I, you know, work a, a job where I sit in front of a computer, you know, not all the time, but enough to where my my posture suffers because of it, because I sit too long in, in a certain spot. And then I try to straighten myself out and I'm like, oh, <laughs> this, this is not good. What I've been doing to my back, you know, I can just tell right off the bat that uh, I have been uh, injuring myself by just sitting and looking at that computer screen in that particular uh, with that posture. Uh, so that's definitely something I know is important. I know that from experience and, and not in a good way. I know it because I don't pay enough attention to my posture and I suffer because of it. Yeah. That's a, that's a big piece that we talk about all the time. You know, it's funny, you know, you feel, I have something like you shouldn't think of posture because it's a, it's a cerebellarly controlled function. So what I want you to do is find a position. that's the very best sitting position, head back, ear holes over your shoulders, you know, sitting up straight, the whole deal, and then make your workstation fit that position. Move your keyboard up, move your monitor up so that you're looking up at it, you know, change your chair, you know, spend some money, you know, because you spend thousand dollars building this really perfect sitting, standing workstation for yourself, your house, that's $50,000 you're not going to have to spend on, you know, doctor visits and chiropractor visits and damage to your body and surgeries and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, it, it is that's the whole piece. Mm -hmm. it's, I had a guy come in who's working on his abs, doing a lot of weighted crunches, as we all do, but he was doing it every single day. And he came in, he's like, no, I've been to see everybody. Nobody can figure out why my back hurts and this and that. And so I started talking to him. He's an athlete. We start talking about, you know, working out. And he tells me that he sits for work. When he, man, when I stand up, it takes me, you know, 10, 15 steps before my I can like stand all the way up. Well, what happens is that he's not doing enough low back exercise. He's doing way too much ab abdominal exercise. And what that's doing is it's curling him into a ball. Mm. It's it's decreasing that lumbar curve, straightening, straightening the musculature in the low back, making his hip flexors tight. So everything in front is balled up, everything in back stretched too thin. That was his big issue. And so because when he sat, he he hyperintensified that that curl piece. When he stood up, everything was locked up. So I was just like, look, you're good. Just go home, do some stretches and exercises. We'll get you adjusted a little bit. And within like two weeks, everything was gone. And he had this problem for six months. Like nobody could figure it out. I'm like, it's, that's the thing. Like yeah. you're not looking at this from a neurobiomechanical standpoint. As soon as we started changing the, the muscular tone balance, totally fine. Hmm. So yeah, wow. sitting can be a massive problem. Yeah. Yeah. So our final pillar is spiritual. And I know this is the, this rounds everything up when it comes to a holistic approach, you know, in, in every holistic, um, approach, whether it be in total wellness or, or some other field that someone uses this term holistic, spiritual always brings up the tail end. Um, so why, do, why is spiritual, the spiritual aspects or component of a human being important? Why is it a, a, an important piece that finishes off the puzzle of wellness? So uh, I'll tell you a quick story. So this, I think this sums up perfectly. So I had a guy come in, and we've been working for a while, two or three years. He's doing great. And he's sitting in the chair and I can tell something's eating at him. Like everybody knows when you know somebody and they're not really listening to you because they're dealing with something. You're like, I was like, what's going on? He's like, dude, what's wrong? He's like, I don't know. I was like, what do you mean you don't know? He's like, dude, he's like, I make way more money than I should. My family's awesome. My wife is amazing. I've got the best kids in the world. He's like, everything in my life is perfect. And I was like, but he's like, I don't know. That's the thing. And I was like, what do you do to give back? He's like, man, I give $10,000 to the church every month. And I'm like, no, that's easy for you. You don't even notice if that happened. If someone else did that, you wouldn't even notice. I'm like, so that doesn't count. I'm like, what are you doing with your time? I'm like, look, you're a great businessman and you have a phenomenal marriage. Why don't you go to the church and see if you can start giving lessons on this? Like help people with their, with their marriage, help people with their business, do those sort of things. He's like, cool. And I don't see him very often. He, he flies in to, to do the work. And he flies back in. And he's and I was like, so what's new, man? He's like, I'm selling my business. And I was like, okay, this you're okay. This is kind of midlife crisis. Like, let's, oh, this is kind of panic mode. And he's like, I don't know. It's cool. He was like, I did what you said. And so now I start getting really scared. Cause I'm like, oh crap. I gave this guy advice. I made him sell his business. This is not, I, someone's going to shoot me. And he's like, I went home and my wife and I started doing marriage classes 
And it was really fulfilling. And then I started going and I started teaching younger kids, like all the entrepreneurial stuff that I knew. And all of a sudden he was like, you know, that thing I kept telling you, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I'm like, yeah, he was like, that was it. He was like, I feel, I feel more fulfilled now than I do when I cast giant check. Because now when I close big deals, it's fun. He's about nothing like watching the light bulb turn on in these kids' heads or watching these husbands go, you're right, I probably should do this a little bit differently. And he's like, teaching and giving back, he's like, is so much, has so much value to me now that I don't even care about anything else. This is what I want to do full time. And so that's what the spiritual pillar is. Like a lot of people have to fix themselves to get to this point where they feel like they need to start giving back. But at a certain point, if you've done enough work on you, now you can turn around and give and give back to the community. You help people on their journey. And that's the typical, this is kind of where I've developed myself into. This is where I feel like I'm at. Because like I I was over like people who are supposed to be my competition, right? The other chiropractors, the other docs in the area. Like I've taught a bunch of the docs in the area how to do hormone therapy because I knew that I'm not going to see their patients. So I want I want them to get better. So you guys do it. You know, I, the other Kairos who don't know how to do some of the things that I do, I'm like, here, let me teach you how to do this and that. And they're like, man, this is so awesome. Thanks so much for this. And I was like, yeah, cool. But that, that's the piece. Now. It's how we help everybody around us become the best person they can be. And so that's that's what the spiritual pillar really is. It's not a it's not a religious thing. It's a how are we connecting with the people around us and making the world a better place that, than when we got here. Yeah, fantastically put. Yep, absolutely. And. uh the four pillars, you put these four pillars together and you are well on your way to wellness. Dr. Chalmers, we really appreciate your time and this has been great. I, I anticipated we were going to have a great conversation and definitely exceeded even my expectations. So really appreciate your time. We appreciate the book that you put out there. The four pillars of wellness. Where can people find your book? Uh, they can go to Amazon, uh, just pillars of wellness, Dr. Chalmers. Uh, we've got it on the website, chalmerswellness.com. So either one of those, you guys can get to it. It's pretty easy to get. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. We th thank you again. And uh, we'll be looking for you out there. We've been following you on, on the socials too. Uh, your talks and, and things like that. A lot of good information you're putting out there. So we strongly recommend that anybody and everybody follow Dr. Matt Chalmers on the socials and anywhere that you can find him. Do you have a website as well, Doc? Yeah, so the socials are all going to be Dr. Chalmers One, so YouTube, Instagram, and okay. then ChalmersWellness.com is my primary website. There it is. Okay. Cool. And we thank you again, sir. Have a good one. You too. Thank you, sir. Thank all right. you.